passage, and then we'll uh, have a word of prayer and we'll get to looking at this. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, and it goes like this. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightst war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, having s- which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's have a word of prayer before we get looking at this. Lord, we do thank you for the day you've given to us today. The sun's come shining in. It's a beautiful, beautiful morning. We thank you for that. We thank you for having blessed us with the bounty of squash and zucchini. You are a gracious God. And we thank you for your word. And we ask that you'll guide us through it by the power of your Holy Spirit. That you'll show us how we can be more like you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So today as we look at this passage here, we're seeing, as I say, Paul's renewing his mission to Timothy. And he starts right off with the words, this charge, this charge, he says, I commit unto thee. And that when he uses words like, well, what charge? That brings us right back to verse 3 when the charge was originally given to Timothy. So let's back up to verse 3 and remember what the charge was. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went to Macedonia, that thou mightst charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Paul had told Timothy, hey, I'm going on to Macedonia. You stay here in Ephesus, and this is what I want you to do. I want you to make sure that these other people who are teaching false doctrines, stop it. So today we're coming right back to that. So what happened was, in chapter 1, is verses 6 to verse 17, where we left off last week, is basically a parenthesis to expand on how Timothy was going to to recognize the problems that he's facing and to explain the empowerment that God's given him to accomplish that mission. And now, Paul's about to show Timothy how to execute the plan to deal with the false teachers. That's what the rest of the book will be. Here's how you're going to do this mission that I'm giving you, Timothy. And that plan is going to take all the resources that God's given to him. Now, in verse 18, we see two of those resources given. Two of them. First of all, we've got uh, Paul's personal support. Paul and Timothy have been through an awful lot together. And Paul's seen Timothy's gifting as a pastor. He's centered on Christ, and he's dedicated to the gospel. Those are a couple of things that Paul's seen. We've seen Paul speak very highly of Timothy to the Philippians. You know, Paul and Timothy were serving in Philippi as well. Uh, Let's look at what Paul had to say about Timothy. Philippians chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. Let's back up to verse 19 to get the picture here. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus, that's Timothy, shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know of your state. For I know of no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father he hath served with me in the gospel. 
Those are pretty high words, aren't they? That's when Paul sent Timothy to Philippi. Now, I'll call out to your attention, that tells me that for a while Timothy was serving in Philippi. Then, what we're seeing right now, uh, Timothy's serving in Ephesus. Sometimes you're not necessarily going to be stuck in the same spot forever uh, in the ministry of God. Timothy served at Philippi, he served at Ephesus, he served at other places too, history tells us. But let's not get sidetracked. We also see Paul's support for Timothy in the word that he says, uh, it's a Greek word, it's paratithomai. He says, I am giving, I commit, I'm giving you this mission. The significance there is it's Paul himself that's giving Timothy this mission. That implies that Paul is behind Timothy all the way on this. And isn't that reassuring? Wouldn't that be reassuring to know that you've got Paul giving you this, I'm giving you my authority, Timothy, to do this job. When I'm uncomfortable taking action at work, it's nice having my boss's authority behind me. You know, I'm doing, I may not be totally comfortable doing this, but my boss told me to do that, and that's reassuring sometimes. And that's what Paul's doing for Timothy. Timothy, you got me backing you up. The second resource that Timothy has, we just looked at, he's got Paul behind him. Second resource that he has for this mission is the prophecies that went before on thee. Now I admit I don't know too much about exactly what those prophecies are, other than to say that they were probably related to what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 14. We'll get there in a little bit. I'll steal a little of my own thunder. First uh, Timothy 4 and verse 14. Uh, that's 5 and 14. That's why it doesn't make sense. Uh, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Paul's talking about a gift that was given with prophecy, laying on of hands. Paul evidently was there at that time, because when we go to 2 Timothy... Paul tells him to stir up the gift of God that's in thee by the putting on of my hands. So this was some kind of ordination to do this task that uh, Paul was a part of, and Timothy, of course, was the one ordained to do the job. Timothy apparently showed a lot of promise early on in his ministry, and perhaps as time went on, doubts had come up in his mind. We already talked about that at the beginning of the book, that Timothy seems to be discouraged, and Paul's really trying to don't, don't get discouraged here, Timothy. We're going to see that more when we go along today, too. See, Paul's reminding Timothy of that time, way back when we had a commissioning ceremony that happened. And now, he's got a war of good warfare, says at the bottom of verse 18. War of good warfare. That's interesting language, isn't it? Using terms like that, Paul's telling Timothy, this isn't always going to be easy. This isn't always going to be easy ministry. It's going to require God's empowering. It's going to require God's guidance. By the way, Paul often compares ministry to soldiering. You see it all over the place. Uh, later on, when Paul's closing his letters to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, he's going to tell Timothy that he personally has fought a good fight himself. So, comparing that with what we're talking about, warring a good warfare. Paul's not asking Timothy to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. Paul says, I've fought a good fight. 
you got a war of good warfare too, Timothy. Uh, now, if we back up to uh, 1 Thessalonians, which was written very early in Paul's career, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, he says, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea were in Christ Jesus. For ye have also suffered like things of your countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men. Early in Paul's career, they'd suffered persecution from the Jews, from the Gentiles. And now here in Ephesus, Timothy has to face internal troubles. Within the church, there's infighting and false doctrine. Did you know that struggles may come from outside? And struggles may come from inside. It's not necessarily an easy ministry. So we move on to our key verse today. The key verse is verse 19 today. It says, Holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Paul starts now telling Timothy how to go about this mission and why it's so critical that he has to succeed. In this verse, we see two strengths that Timothy has which are going to be critical to his success here. First is faith. Second is a good conscience. And those, by the way, as you read through Paul's other writings, those are both good qualities that Paul seems to hold in very high regard. We've already mentioned early on in 1 Timothy, that faith, or pistis in the Greek, is one of Paul's favorite terms, both in this book as well as in all of his other writings. Paul constantly writes about faith, faith, faith. I'm not going to expand on that anymore here. We've already, we have in the past, and I'm going to again before we're done. I'm not going to take a lot of time to do that here. Right here today, I'd like to mention and talk about the good conscience. Good conscience. We looked at this one a little bit in depth on verse 5 when we saw Paul tell Timothy that both love and a good conscience. Let's back up and let's look at it. Verse 5. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Both love and a good conscience are the goals of this command. Paul's giving this command to Make sure that you straighten out this false teaching so that there can be love and good conscience and proper faith. So when he's speaking here, Paul's telling Timothy that he will succeed in this mission if he allows the gospel message and the Christ of the gospel to guide him in this ministry to influence everybody that's under his instruction. These, peop these believers who were in Ephesus. Now, I personally believe that the sum that it speaks of here that are mentioned as not holding to the faith and not having a good conscience are the false teachers and the false teaching that Paul's already mentioned earlier. I think that's pretty clear. They've rejected the faith and they've rejected the good conscience that Paul encourages so much. That word, put away, it says, uh, having, holding good faith and good conscience, which some, having put away, uh, that's a Greek word, apatheo. It's only used six times in the New Testament to put away. Three times are in the book of Acts. One refers to the pushing aside of Moses 
in Acts 7, verse 27, which resulted in the wilderness wanderings and all the bad things that happened there. I'm not going to give you a Jewish history lesson there. You can go and look at it yourself. Also in Acts, uh, we see the rejecting of God's word through Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13, verse 46. And that resulted in Paul having to change his ministry target. All right, you guys are going to push me away. You're going to reject me and Barnabas and our teachings. Then I'm done teaching you Jews. I'm going to go to the Gentiles now. Pretty bad circumstances, right? When you reject Moses, you wander in the wilderness. When you reject Paul and Barnabas and his teaching, all right, the gospel's done going to you, folks. Paul uses the same word twice in Romans chapter 11 with the rhetorical question about God. Did God reject his people? In verse 1, uh, and again the insistence that God, no, God didn't reject his people. Very serious circumstances. So this apotheo word here, this putting away, is very, very serious. When you look at all these uses, you realize that this is not a minor issue to reject faith and to reject the good conscience that comes with the pure gospel. And as if to, on top of that, with that warning about how dangerous it is to reject it, it talks that they've made shipwreck of their faith. They've made shipwreck of their faith. Did you know that when personal, healthy personal faith and healthy personal good conscience are shaky or rejected, the consequences are disastrous. Think about that term shipwreck for a minute here. Paul isn't exaggerating when he says that they made shipwreck of their faith. What happens with a shipwreck? It's a total loss, right? I mean, uh, it's total personal loss. You have nothing. Your ship was wrecked. Everything that you had went down with the ship. You're nothing. You're stranded on a desert island. Think Gilligan's Island, all right? Gilligan's Island, they were shipwrecked, right? They lost everything except for the limitless changes of clothes that Ginger had. Think about Skipper and Gilligan. They never changed their shirts for the entire run of that show. But Ginger was able to change her clothes about three times an episode. Uh, that's the only thing they had was Ginger's wardrobe. Now, we're going to see in a little bit when we get to chapter 2 and verse 4, that rather than shipwreck our faith, God wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I want you to stew on that during this week and come ready next week, because that's going to be our focus. God wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just a teaser. I'll give you another teaser for next week too, but that'll be later. Let's look at verse 4. Of whom, talking about people who have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So now Paul does something that we're told not to do in today's society. We're told not to do this. I've heard it said that preachers shouldn't name names from the pulpit, right? And to that, I say, and Paul said, flapdoodle. Flapdoodle. Uh, Paul says, calls out folks by name plenty of times, doesn't he? We can read through Paul's words and we can see that this, he calls people out by name all the time. And this is no exception. 
two such shipwreckers as Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now, these names might have meant a lot, they obviously meant a lot to Timothy back in his day, and they don't mean too much to you and me 2,000 years later because we don't know much about these guys. Uh, there is mentioned in the Bible someone who, by the name of Hymenaeus. He's associated with a guy named Philetus. If we go to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Because Paul's referring to this Hymenaeus to Timothy in 2 Timothy, uh, at the time when Timothy was still at Ephesus, I think that's probably the same guy. Which tells me that this, after this passage, this warning, he still hasn't corrected his ways. He was still walking in error, still spreading false truth. Almost definitely the same fella. By the way, his name uh, refers to the Greek god of marriage, if you were curious. They had a god of marriage. They had a god for everything. Uh, the second guy, Alexander, we've got even less information on this fella. Uh, there were a lot of Alexanders mentioned in the Bible. Uh, he may very well be the same guy Paul also mentions in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verses 14 and 15. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Of whom be thou ware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. Again, seems to have not corrected his ways. If it's the same guy, he hasn't, hasn't made good. He's still causing trouble. There's a lot of folks like that. I think there's a, that guy is pretty likely to be the Alexander we're talking about here, too. I'm just speculating. But even if we don't know too much about these guys, one thing is very clear. Paul's taken measures. He says he delivered them unto Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. Now that Greek word to learn uh, has a root. It's uh, poeo. And Paul uses that root word other places to describe correction. He's not talking about punishment. He didn't deliver him to Satan to be destroyed, to be punished, or for personal vengeance or anything like that. It's correction. It's a course correction. It's, well, hey, I oversteered. I need to come back. That's what it is. So what Paul's doing here is intended to restore them to faith rather than allowing them to continue misrepresenting that faith or even worse, slandering that faith. You see, their actions, Hymenaeus and Alexander here, their actions have been terrible and they've been damaging. But God can save them in spite of that. I want to remember that for next week when we're talking about it's God's desire that all men may be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God can save them in spite of how bad they were. We talked the last couple of weeks. After all, God saved Paul. Paul was on a hunting trip, hunting Christians, and God saved him. Paul knows this very well. Hymenaeus and Alexander, they're, spreading, they're not hunting Christians, they're just spreading false teachings. That's a lot less than what Paul did. 
Jesus himself told us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, that we're to love our enemies. Anybody have enemies? No, you're all good folks. You haven't got any enemies. There's nobody that doesn't like you folks. Uh, but if you were, if you were the sort of person that might have enemies, Jesus tells you you should love them. So notice, I mean, it, it sounds pretty severe. Well, I've turned them over to Satan. It sounds like Paul's using a nuclear option on them, but that's not what he's doing. This is for their own good. This is to help them correct their ways so that they might learn not to blaspheme. Ultimately, the goal is that they learn something, correct their course, and come back. It's all for their own good. Paul's helping Timothy by stopping these men from doing any further damage, as well as giving Timothy and giving you and me an example of how to deal with destructive people in the church. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes, too. Uh, while we're on the topic here, the only other time that we see Paul turn someone over to Satan is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter 5, find it here, uh, verses 3 and 5. Yes, here we go. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that hath done this deed. We're not going to bother talking about all that. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Again, notice it's the gospel that is the heart of this delivery to Satan. His flesh can be destroyed so that his soul can be saved. And that particular case there in 1 Corinthians involved a man in the church who was openly living in an incestuous relationship. You can read it yourself if you want to. I'm not going to bother with that right now. That's not the focus. The focus is when you compare these two cases, you see one common theme. It's not to destroy them. It's so that they come around to proper faith and true gospel. And that ought to be your focus and it ought to be my focus as we go through this Christian walk, right? We ought to be sharing the gospel with all men because it's God's desire that all men come to the gospel and the knowledge of the truth. Now, also, when you compare these two cases, and perhaps you can look at uh, Job chapter 2 and verse 6, you could come to the conclusion that, at least in part, part of Satan's job is to serve as an agent in God's judgment. That's part of Satan's job. Satan has a task in this world, and that's part of it. That's not the whole thing, that's part of his job. Sometimes situations arise in the church that call for harsh measures to wake people up. Not to destroy them, not to reject them, but to wake people up. It's pretty easy for the church to fall asleep. It's pretty easy for the church to be lazy, to be lackadaisical. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a few minutes. In fact, what we're here's a if you've got time in between services, you can look at where we're going to be going. We're going to be going to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to be focusing around verses 10 to 14. And in that, you're going to see 
some measures that cause people to have to wake up out of their slumber, this unruly, undisciplined life that we can so easily fall into. But in today's passage here in 1 Timothy, these men need to learn to not blaspheme. Now, it's presumed that if and when they learn their lesson, it's going to be a benefit to all concerned, right? The church will regain them. They will have come back around to the truth. We don't see a lot of evidence that it happened. I guess we're going to have to wait till we get to heaven to see if, it, if they did come around. But that's the goal. The goal is to have them come back to faith. And then the church can grow. Just as the church grew from Paul's testimony, Paul used to be an awfully wicked person, a hunter of Christians. Paul became probably the greatest evangelist of all time. That's quite a testimony, isn't it? And these guys, if they come back around, can have an equally good testimony. Yeah, I was the guy that Paul wrote about. He had to turn me over to Satan so that I could learn not to blaspheme but look at me now. I don't know what happened to him. I'm waiting for that day when I can ask that question. Hey, hey, Alexander, there you are. I read about you. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Because none of us are perfect, are we? Nobody's answering me. None of us are perfect, right? I'm not. I, sure, I, I know I'm not. I, I'm pretty sure none of you are either. So we need to be forgiving because we know we're not perfect. And if somebody does truly repent, then we need to embrace them and bring them back, even if it's from particularly heinous sins, right? I think that's a good note to leave on this morning. You mind if I close in a word of prayer? Lord, we do thank you for your forgiveness. You are ever so gracious to us. None of us deserve your forgiveness, and yet you give it anyway, and you give it abundantly. Help us to worship you and give you the praise that you're worthy for being so gracious, so good, and so benevolent to us. You're the only God worthy of our praise. It's in your name we, we do praise you. Amen.